Welcome to The Strategic Investor. Join us as we interview some of the world's most productive asset managers and uncover sophisticated and unique investment strategies in the markets. Here is your host, Charlie Wright. Hello and welcome to Strategic Investor Radio on OC Talk Radio, where we bring you investment strategies you are not hearing elsewhere. I'm Charlie Wright. We're very pleased you've joined us. And we're talking today for the second time with Nate Polachek, partner and portfolio manager at Commodity Asset Management, a commodities-focused asset manager. He speaks to us from their headquarters in New York City. Nate, welcome back to Strategic Investor Radio. Thanks very much. So, Nate, uh, you started your career at Goldman Sachs. From there, you went to uh, some places, including Bridgewater Capital and AQR Hedge Funds. And I think those are the two largest hedge funds in the country, if not the world. They probably manage uh, uh, aggregated uh, more money than most countries have in currencies. Uh, You're now uh, managing uh, commodities trading. And... uh, that should become more popular and more mainstream as this bull market continues to get long in the tooth. So let's begin again with a brief background of yours here, Nate. Yeah, just on a, on a, on a personal level. Um, so I'm the child of two PhDs. Um, I'm married to a former Jeopardy champion. And um, my hobbies are, are pretty diverse outside of work and investing. Um, I'm interested in NASCAR. and I'm also interested in, um, in film. Um, I actually initially studied to be a rabbi um, at Yeshiva University, which was not a target recruiting school for the larger investment banks. Um, I started trading stock in my my college dorm room, Um, ended up getting hired into the uh, options and derivatives group at a market-making firm called Spearleads and Kellogg. And we shortly thereafter, um, about nine months after I started, we got bought out by Goldman Sachs for $6.5 billion. so, yeah, I worked at Goldman Sachs for about seven years, um, worked at Bridgewater Associates, AQR, and um, now partner and portfolio manager at Commodity Asset Management. Hey, we appreciate hearing all of that. And maybe at the end we'll have a couple of minutes to uh, for you to tell us about uh, how to do well in the world of NASCAR here. And uh, we won't ask if uh, you ever lose arguments at your house. Given your wife's credentials, we know the answer to that question here. So uh, uh, let's begin a little again on the personal side. As you mentioned here, you worked at uh, Bridgewater and AQR, certainly two of the storied hedge funds. Again, I think they're the two largest uh, in the country, if not the world. Uh, Very well known. You've seen things that the rest of us only hear about. Um, They have been exceptionally successful. What are some of the takeaways here, Nate, that you have observed or experienced about how to build a successful firm and just how to be successful itself? Yeah. So, I mean, when I first started working on Wall Street, and this was before working at Bridgewater and AQR, um, I remember one of my bosses had a plastic sign, um, which he had made, and he put it above his trading area. And on that sign was written, whoever is loudest is right. You know, he eventually took the sign down, but it, it kind of always bothered me um, because what I thought it should have said was 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 really who is most logical is right, um, not who's loudest is right. So one of my key takeaways at working at, at both Bridgewater and AQR is, is really whoever is logical is most right. I mean, both of those firms focus extensively on data, 
but not just on the data, but really, really developing um, a real understanding of like the logic behind the data. Um, and you know that that carried with me after Bridgewater. I remember working at at a fund afterwards. I, I developed a strategy which I called I called it the one minute hedge fund. Basically, I could predict with eighty one percent accuracy over one minute during the trading day alone which way the market would go up or down. And that strategy, you know, worked for a while. And eventually, like, you know, sort of understanding why it was working and like the drivers behind it, you know, based on the data set that I was using, that helped me cut the strategy quickly when the when the success rates eventually, you know, declined. And that was a valuable lesson. And another thing that I learned just, you know, from, from watching Ray Dalio, who is an amazing person, he always used to say that, that chefs should taste their own cooking and that the managers should be on such a high level um, that they can't you know, really roll up their sleeves and get involved. And I, I remember when I, this really hit home with him is, is, you know, Bridgewater's headquarters is in um, a small town in Connecticut called Westport. You can look at pictures of it online, but it's, it, it's basically situated next to a nature preserve. The main building is surrounded by water. And, um, you know, before I came to the firm, someone came up with a brilliant idea for something called the scrum, um, which was basically a no holds bar race through the water around the building, um, and then the winner would get a prize. And then Ray stepped up and he said, hey, that's a great idea. I'll offer two tickets anywhere in the world to whoever wins this race. And, like, this isn't just a simple, like, you know, mode around the building. I mean, there are rocks, there's a waterfall. Um, you know, after that race, many people got injured. But, you know, so I was in, in one of the heats of the race, which I actually ended up winning, um, making it to the finals. But when I looked over at the other people in my heat in the race, Ray Dalio himself was in my heat. He was participating, and he was in his he was in his late fifties. So that really hit home, you know, is that you know when there's a good idea or something to get involved in, um, you know, Ray stepped up and Ray got involved as well. You know, those are great examples. We appreciate it. I've seen many interviews of Ray Dalio. Really seems like an interesting guy. Somebody I'd love to sit down and have lunch or dinner with sometime. And obviously, he could afford to pay for it. And uh, and he has lots of different uh, interviews, so I know he, he, he must kind of enjoy doing that. I, I uh, read several uh, reviews of his recent book in the past few months. Uh, they didn't get the best reviews, but uh, to, to have been at least somewhat close, not only to him, but of his influence, it must have just been a great experience. And AQR, you know, Barron's Magazine one day uh, had them on their cover. They wrote an article about them, laudatory comments about Cliff Asnes and others there at AQR. And um, I, I follow closely uh, some of their investments. So really, my congratulations for, for really being in the belly of the beast here of seeing how things work. And I'm glad to hear that uh, those things are, are working positively here for you. And by the way, after we get off the air, your job is to teach me that one-minute hedge fund uh, strategy here because I could sure use it here. So, Nate, uh, tell us about uh, your strategy. You're in the world of commodities. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, the uh, long-only strategy in equities is getting old and uh, it is struggling this year. And many people see it struggling for some time to come. Not necessarily a great bear market, but struggling to make money in equities, especially index-type investments. Commodities have got to become more important 
in the near future. However, it has been, and nobody needs to tell you, tough five to six years. So tell us what you guys are doing and how you plan to overcome those difficulties that most commodity firms have not been able to overcome in the past few years. We focus, you know, at Commodity Asset Management, we focus specifically on the industrial commodities complex. So things that we invest in, and we're, we're, again, we're long and short in terms of our investment. So we're not only betting that markets go up, we also can bet the markets go down as well. So we, we look at aluminum, we look at zinc, we look at nickel, lead, palladium, you know, and other commodities which, which people may not have heard of, you know, beryllium and, and things like concrete and steel. We and all in, the futures, all in the futures market, correct? Yeah, so we're about 70% futures in our, in our commingled fund, which is our main hedge fund product. Some of our, and then 30% equities. Interestingly, some of our investors actually prefer to invest only via futures. So we'll offer a separate futures-only program for those investors as well via separately managed accounts. But, I mean, basically our strategy is, is, is we, we develop a very, very deep fundamental understanding of the commodities we trade. And, and this is not, you know, a gigantic sandbox like, you know, a macro fund or right. someone that's looking at tons and millions and millions of different markets. I mean, we're very you know, very, very focused. So, I mean, we talked to a large network of, of, you know, shippers, producers, warehouses, intermediaries. And then the other side of it, we have, we have a strong quantitative focus where we're, we're looking at, you know, imagery of 192 facilities around the world. And we, we distill what we see in those images into, into basically concrete factors, which helps us develop quantitative metrics on the supply and demand of different commodities. So most, uh, Managed futures and futures commodity uh, managers are trend follower types, various technical analysis skills, etc. Do you guys do trend following or do you strictly fundamental analysis like you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're strictly fundamental. We will look at trends and look at moving averages just as, as, as sort of guidance in terms of like where other people in the market may be entering positions or, or taking off positions, which, which can create opportunities. Um, but in terms of our approach, like we really feel that we have to have a deep fundamental understanding of a value of the commodities that we trade and then, and then trade accordingly. Well, you're probably one of the few around. Platinum and other, other commodities you mentioned uh, are really not in the vocabulary of most people that I know. Speaking of that, tell us what misperceptions do you see by investors and advisors in the commodity space? What do you feel like you understand that we or they don't? I think a lot of people look at commodities and almost write it off as an asset class because they feel that it's it's almost too volatile. I understand where they're coming from. I by and large disagree with that. I mean, if you look at the last, you know, look over the last 18 years and you look at, let's say, stocks like the S&P 500, so that market's generally up or down about 16% per year. If you look at bonds, right, that's generally up or down about 4% per year. So people often associate commodities with the, the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index which is incredibly volatile. I mean, that goes up and down about 24% per year. I mean, the thing with that index is it's about 65% energy, which is, is something that we don't get involved in, only 10% of industrial metal, uh, metals, which is, which is what we do trade. There's another commodity index called the Bloomberg Commodity Index, which actually has much, you know, much more equity-like returns. I mean, it's up, up or down about 16% per year, which is almost exactly the same as stocks, and that's only about 30% energy and 17% industrial metals, so it's not overly weighted energy, which is incredibly volatile. And like, if you look down, drill down further into the day-to-day volatility of that 
Bloomberg Commodity Index, um, it's actually less than equities. It's less than the S&P 500 over the last 18 years. I mean, the S&P 500 had 71 days with, with moves greater than 3% and 65 days with moves with down moves that are that are less than 3%. And that Bloomberg Commodity Index had 27 days um, without moves greater than 3% and, and 41 days with down moves that were less than 3%, so less volatile. The other sort of important thing to note with that index is that it has a very low correlation to the overall market. I mean, in a statistical term, 0.103 R squared over the past 18 years. So it's a great diversifier. So, I mean, the question we often get asked is why shouldn't I simply, you know, buy an index fund and be done with with things? So, first of all, the ETF that tracks those different commodity indexes are not all that cheap on a fee basis. And they're, they're no bargain like, you know, the 4%, the, sorry, the four basis points you pay on a, an S&P 500 Vanguard fund. I mean, they're, they're about 70 basis points for the Bloomberg Commodity Index ETF, 70 basis points for the Bloomberg Commodity Index ETF, 75 for the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. Those are actually very close to our own fund management fees. And then the other thing is that index funds are long only. So the Bloomberg Commodity Index was up 10 of the last 18 years, but it was down eight of the last 18 years. You know, and it was down as much as 36% in 2008. So you need to invest in a fund like ours that, that's long and short that can still profit um, in down markets. You know, those are some great points. Uh, what, for you guys right now, to, to be brutally honest here, what are your particular challenges, okay, in investing in commodities and trying to create profit by investing in commodities? So, I mean, I think the, the biggest challenges, I mean, commodities move, they're volatile. It's not, it's not so much as creating profit. A lot of it is really the risk management side and really protecting the portfolio against large moves. And, like, a lot of the, the, the typical models that people use in investing, like the value at risk or the VAR model, those are very backward-looking. I don't find that they do a phenomenal job um, of really estimating the tail risk within commodities. I mean, so what we do differently is, like, we, we look more on a forward basis, and we'll, we'll run, you know, 10,000 Monte Carlo simulations on our portfolio. That helps us see risks and events that may not have happened before, but definitely could happen going forward unless us hedge accordingly. Well, what would you say um, are the major objections uh, by people to investing in commodities? Is it primarily just ignorance? I don't know commodities, and I, I just don't trust something that I don't know. Peter Lynch says, you know, don't invest in something you don't understand. What do you think? We don't have a great amount of objections when we actually meet with investors. I think the, the, the major obstacle for us is just simply just getting the word out. Like a lot of people are not familiar with commodities. You know, there's, there's a lot of very good marketing for, you know, for equities, for index funds and things like that. But when we actually sit down with an investor and, and explain what we do and that, that what we do is actually less volatile than investing purely in the stock market, we're not correlated to the rest of the portfolio. They're, by and large, very excited about what we're doing, and they, they really find what we do differentiated. Well, very interesting. I, I would not have, uh, have recognized that. So, you know, uh, we've done about 300-plus uh, interviews here on our show, Nate. Yeah, it's the second one with, with you. We only have the best back. We interviewed uh, a couple of people who were involved with the early turtle traders who, were in, who in the mid-'80s uh, took on a challenge, were taught, as I'm sure you know their story, but for uh, some of our audience, they were taught uh, 
trading methodologies and then they went out and traded and we actually interviewed one of i i think the most successful one and the story that we've been told was that at that time it was very very easy to make uh, profit in commodity trading but that today it is significantly more difficult and the fee, the, the, the advisory fees are much, much less. And so it is a very different environment than it was at that time. How do you see that? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. And I've read the, you know, the turtle trading rules and I've, I've really dug into that. I think it was a great strategy. Trend following definitely worked very, very well for a long time. I think a lot of people know how that strategy works. So I think the, the, the real way that there's still opportunities in commodities are, are really approaching things and, and looking at different sources of data, not that which is everyone else can see, like movements of commodities and moving averages and Bollinger Bands and things like that. Like one really has to drill down, you know, and using the tools that we have that other people might not have access to, you know, imagery and things like that to really get a differentiated read on things. Well, interesting. We'd love to have you back sometime and, and get a little more into the tall weeds and find out what imagery in regards to that actually means and these other things. So what would you say, and again, with your background, I, I, I would love to hear, what would you say, given Bridgewater, AQR, etc., what was the best advice about investing that you ever heard, read, or received? I mean, there's... There are two sort of very key piece of, pieces of advice that I've, I've learned over the years. The first is the market is always right. I mean, people oftentimes can argue about valuation. I'm a value investor. I think that the stock should go here. It's really worth this. I don't care what the market is saying. Like, you have to be diligent about stop losses, and you have to understand that there's, there's other flows in the market that are not purely fundamental based on valuation that can move things, especially if they're, you know, in the current times where, a large portion of the, you know, the, the the order flow comes about through index funds, which are, are are not really focused on on pure valuation. So one has to be very mindful of that. I think the best piece of advice that that, that I actually ever received was not actually advice. I mean, I remember remember years back going to an investor conference, and there was a sort of multi-billion-dollar hedge fund manager on stage and talking about how they had a really good year because they beat. Um, a down index. I think it was an index that was down like 21%. And this fund beat that index by 120 basis points. So they were down like 19.8%. Wow, something and to I be proud of. Yeah, yeah, not something to be proud of. And like, I remember <laughs> overhearing someone sitting near me, you know, they whispered to their neighbor, they were like, in all seriousness, they were like, yeah, but relative returns don't put gasoline into my yacht. Right. <laughs> I mean, I reflected on that, and like as a fund manager, I mean, there are really no excuses. I mean, we have all the tools, you know, we have tools at our disposal. We can make money for our investors in up markets, down markets, volatile markets, and non-volatile markets. So really, we have, there are no excuses whatsoever. Great. Well, thank you. Now, there was a, was there a second one that I missed here? No, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's really it. I mean, the, the, the most important advice is obviously respecting the market. Oh, right. But. Okay. You know, as a manager, one really has to, you know, has to understand that our job is to make money for our investors. So, you know, we can't get complacent or offer excuses that we, you know, may have beaten index or slightly right. beat it. No, like we have the ability to make money in all markets. You're right. So uh, a fi uh, final question here, uh, Nate, uh, you know, with the background you have, education, experience, etc., you could be 
doing many things in the investment world. Why have you chosen commodity asset management? So why did you go there and what keeps you there? When I reflect back in terms of, of, of trading in a mega fund, I mean, it's almost like driving a truck with like a half broken brake pedal. I mean, position sizes are so large at some of those firms. It's just really, really tough for them to react quickly when there are crisis situations and make large, you know, necessary, necessary, you know, large portfolio adjustments. Frankly, like, I think there are a lot of opportunities right now within the space that we're involved in with the niche commodities that others are just simply not focusing on. The other side from it is like, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit from, from a very young age. I mean, I grew up in a small town in upstate New York called, called Vestal. Um, it's just outside of Binghamton. I mean, we live near Binghamton University where my parents were professors. One of the things that always bothered me was like every Sunday morning, my parents, um, they used to get up early. They would drive to the supermarket to buy the New York Times. We didn't have any home delivery. So when I was 12 years old, I, um, I decided there was a need to fill. I decided to start a uh, New York Times home delivery service. So I, I found a, a local distributor who would sell me papers at a reduced cost. But more importantly, even was I didn't, it was 12 years old. I didn't have a driver's license. So they were willing to, to deliver those papers to, to my house. I remember going out, you know, once I, I solidified that deal, I printed up 120 flyers and I went around the neighborhood. I, I didn't, you know, ring the bell or anything like that. I just like left them at people's doors, you know, with a phone number on it. And I remember when I came home, I was expecting to have, you know, 50 customers. And I asked, asked my parents, like, how many people called? And they said there was like one call. <laughs> um, so I remember the next week, I, I started thinking about it, like what went wrong. And I, I decided like, I really needed to, to meet the people in person. So I went door to door, you know, around dinner time, And I somehow managed to get 18 customers, which I eventually built up into a business. So like, that was a very valuable lesson for me as well. And the lesson is like, there's, there's great importance in an encounter beyond that, which is, is, is written down. Like a lot of hedge funds, they like to send out, you know, here's my one page or here's my letter. No, like you have to, Ideal would be an in-person encounter, but I mean, far better than that is, is, is something like this where it's, they can hear your voice or a video where they can see you, but, but that's the real, real way to, to, to develop a connection. And, you know, no matter where one is in terms of, of, of management, like one always has to have that connection with their investors. You know, I love that story. When you were 12, I'm going to tell that to my grandkids for the next several weeks here as they sit and uh, they watch the Avengers and other Marvel uh, uh, magician things. And, uh, you know, you were out hustling and doing it, and probably not so much because you needed the money, but you had that entrepreneurial spirit. So congratulations yeah. here. So give uh, your website for those who would like to know more here, Nate. The easiest way to find us is actually if you just Google commodity asset management, be at the top of your browser. Our website is www commoditylp.com, so C-O-M-M-O-D-I-T-Y-L-P.com. My email, if anyone wants to reach me, is Nathaniel, N-A-T-H-A-N-I-E-L, at commoditylp.com. I always take phone calls, so my number is 212-338-0044. Okay, and, and as I promised earlier, quickly, uh, what is it that you do in creating algorithms for NASCAR, NASCAR yeah, I mean, races? Well, a lot of it is is that NASCAR is a very clean sport um, in terms of there's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of specific rules about the cars. So the idea is to create factors, you know, around around basically the different races. So be it the weather during the race, you know, there are certain 
pit crews, and you, you can actually get the times for how long it takes a car to do a pit change. There are certain drivers, like, for example, Denny Hamlin, one driver, his pit crew is about 4% faster than the average pit crew. So Denny, Denny Hamlin's pit crew will often do better in races that have, you know, more pit changes. So it's really like distilling things into, like, numbers and factors, putting those all together, and then coming up with a framework of, like, where people are, are, are misestimating the risk in a race or, you know, and oftentimes it's, it's, it's the middling drivers. It's not the favorites of the race, but it's sort of the mid-tier races, the mid-tier drivers in the race that people often uh, overlook. Well, very interesting. We can certainly recognize your, your quantitative analysis background here and, uh, and, and hedge fund analysis work here. So best of luck to you in, in the NASCAR uh, thing as well. And in addition, hope you occasionally at least win some arguments at home with your championship wife here from Jeopardy. So, Nate, thank you very much for joining us uh, for the second time. Very interesting. Our best wishes to you and to Commodity Asset Management for continued success in a very challenging uh, part of the financial world here. Thank you for joining us. Very welcome. Again, we've been talking with Nate Polachek, Partner and Portfolio Manager at Commodity Asset Management in New York City. You've been listening to Strategic Investor Radio on OC Talk Radio. We'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at info at strategicinvestorradio.com and go to our website to hear podcasts of all of our interviews and shows, strategicinvestorradio.com. In the meantime, I'm Charlie Wright, wishing you a very enjoyable week and productive investing. Strategic Investor Radio is a production of OC Talk Radio and is provided for educational purposes only. Content of this program and the views of the guests should not be considered as recommendations by OC Talk Radio or investment advice from the host Charlie Wright or any other entity attached to this production. Investors should always consult qualified financial, investment, tax, or legal professionals prior to investing. 